Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Depending on time available, a bit later, we'll hear from three or four or five of the Drug Truth Network reporters... But first, I want to share with you an interview I did with one of the brave souls whose work helped to bring about today's drug reform movement. Arnold S. Trebach, he's a uh, civil rights activist, professor, author, and drug reform pioneer. And I, I want to welcome you, sir, to the Cultural Baggage Program. Thank you kindly. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. I want to, uh, if you will, back the train up a bit and ask you, what got you started as a trailblazer in drug reform? Oh, it was like so many things of that nature. It was an accident. Uh, many years ago, uh, I guess in the early 70s, I was reviewing uh, the uh, budgetary documents of the Nixon administration and saw that in the middle of crime control was control of heroin. I then went and looked at what little was known about heroin by me and by others and concluded that the basis for American policy back then in the early 70s was based on a, a witch's brew of misinformation, hysteria, and outright falsehoods. That's what started me. Just that little look at the budgetary explanation for the Nixon anti-crime program. Well, all right, so thank you for that. Uh, I think our, our friend uh, Mr. Cliff Schaefer sums it up as it's nothing more than witchcraft. I, uh, I think that's a, there's some validity in that, is there not? Yes, I think there is. There's, uh, there's a belief that, uh, you know, we can do something about uh, the taking of drugs, and I think the most important thing we can do is inform people honestly of the various dangers of the different kind of drugs, including alcohol and tobacco. Your book is forthcoming, Fatal Distraction, The War on Drugs in the Age of Islamic Terror. As I understand it, it's hitting the bookshelves now. And yes. I, w I want to thank you for coming on our show. T uh, tell us about this book, if you will. Yes, I. Uh, uh, this is the uh, uh, one in a trilogy of books I'm putting out for unlimited publishing. It has two major themes. The first is that after all this time, uh, we must admit that the war on drugs fails, that uh, drug prohibition fails, even though they're all well-intentioned, uh, drug prohibition does not work. The war on drugs does not work. Uh, it causes more harm than good. Secondly, and this is now most important, uh, in this age of Islamic terror, uh, the thought that we would divert any of our limited intelligence and law enforcement resources to save you and me from uh, you know, being tempted by a marijuana cigarette is preposterous. I'll give you one example today, just today, within the last few days. Uh, Hezbollah has announced that it's going to, you know, unleash its sleeper cells in the United States and elsewhere to make attacks on Americans and Jews and Israelis uh, because we are the great Satan. And 
in the paper today, there's a glowing report of an arrest of uh, a number of people because they were selling cot, K-H-A-T, which is a stimulant used widely in Africa. Now, uh, so we, we have had diverted from the war on terror, looking out for the next Hezbollah sleeper cell that might try to harm us, uh, dozens and dozens of DEA agents, FBI agents, and criminal justice prosecutors saving us from cut. It's preposterous. In, indeed it is, sir. Uh, within your book, you also talk of another preposterous situation. Uh, Mr. Mark Emery and the uh, several dozen uh, DEA agents involved over an 18-month period. Uh, it is a complete waste of our resources, isn't yes, it? Yes, what's interesting is that uh, Emery is, uh, he's known as the Prince of Pot in Canada, and he's, you know, I, I suspect he's in violation of the laws of Canada, but he's done it in such a way that he's right at the edge, is not viewed as a threat to the you know, security of the country or to any country, and somehow or other uh, we ended up, the United States and Canada cooperated in, a, in an investigation that cost millions of dollars and took the resources of, of dozens of, of agents when those agents might have been aimed at preventing another uh, Ahmad Rassam who came through Canada with explosives uh, uh, in his car tire aimed at blowing up Los Angeles Airport, and he was captured only by accident. So uh, the resources of Canadian and American police should be looking for the next terrorist, you know, who is allowed to roam relatively freely in Canada, ca prevent that person from coming to the U.S., or, you know, from doing harm in Canada. Now, within your book, you, you have a, a rather diverse and, and historic look at the drug reform organizations. I think to this day, many who work within drug reform and who personally want to end the drug war, uh, you know, folks who seek needle exchange programs, medical marijuana, or harm uh, reduction methods, are deathly afraid to use the L word. Your, your thought on that? Oh, yes. I mean, it's interesting that... Um... I became an advocate of full legalization of drugs along the alcohol and tobacco model, I guess, about 10 or 15 years ago. But uh, for the most part, the leaders of drug policy reform in the U.S. and in many other countries are fearful of using that word. I think uh, one of the major messages of my book is that as much as I support harm reduction and needle exchange and uh, good treatment for addicts, uh, it is not enough. It is as if uh, uh, during the 1800s there were advocates who said we must give better housing and medical care for slaves when that would be improving an evil system that needed destroying. Drug prohibition is a very harmful system. It must be destroyed, not made more civilized. Very true, sir. I understand that the uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy is starting a new um, program, if you will, to declare drug use to be a disease uh, rather than, you know, a, a criminal offense, I suppose. Your thoughts, sir, is that not just uh, a redirection, a, a means to continue their financial uh, funding? Well, you know, it, it, it shows at least a, a bit of sensitivity. I, I don't happen to believe it is a disease, but uh, uh, many of my colleagues do. 
And, and without debating that point, by saying it's a disease, you do get a more compassionate approach. But the simple fact is that the great majority of people who use drugs are neither addicted or diseased. I mean, the largest uh, group of people in the world who use an illegal drugs are those who use marijuana. Most of the people who use marijuana are not harmed by it. It doesn't affect their lives. Uh, and the only way in which they might get affected is if they get arrested. So that to say that tens of millions of uh, marijuana users around the world are diseased is, is just doing at war with reality. Well, once again, we are speaking with Professor Arnold S. Trebach. He's the author of the brand-new book, Fatal Distraction, The War on Drugs in the Age of Islamic Terror. Professor, uh, the Drug Truth Network offers $1,200 cash to any drug warrior willing to come on the show for 15 minutes and to uh, clarify the need for uh, this drug war. The offer has been in place for uh, about four years now. We've never had a nibble. Are, are they really that afraid of the truth? Well, I, uh, I have found over the years that uh, I have debated uh, some uh, drug warriors openly but generally speaking, uh, they, uh, the approach has been to say that those who advocate changing the drug laws want our kids to use drugs and even die from them. And so uh, the basic idea is to uh, prevent uh, any notion that uh, opposition is respectable. You know, it's interesting in that regard. Many years ago, I was on TV, uh, oh, this must have been, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago, and I got a call from the, um, the assistant to a very wonderful uh, man in Chicago, young fella, commodities broker, and he came to see me saying, I, I like what you're doing, and I, what do you want to accomplish? I said, I want to make opposition to the drug war decent and respectable. And Richard Dennis, that's his name, said, I, I agree with that, and I'm going to provide support to you. And he did, to the tune of millions of dollars when I was running the Drug Policy Foundation, which I founded. So that I think that's been accomplished. Right now, uh, opposition to the drug war is viewed as decent and respectable. Uh, there are many leading uh, police officials who oppose it. And so I, I'm surprised that you still have difficulty uh, getting people to come on and, and, and discuss the need for drug prohibition. With trillions handed over to the terrorists, the cartels, and the gangs over the lifetime of this drug war to purchase recreational drugs, and uh, uh, more than a half trillion, some say a full trillion dollars given over to law enforcement. Let's, let's talk about the money, this uh, money squandered on the drug war, and let's talk about what benefit, if any, we've derived from that expenditure. I think there is one benefit, and I, I, you know, I, I, I'm pleased and proud that I am often, or sometimes, shall we say, asked to speak to organizations of uh, law enforcement people. Uh, they say, uh, and I'm being immodest, we disagree with you, but we respect the way you present your arguments, and I, and I value that. But uh, one of the things that uh, I find very important is to recognize that uh, the, the people in drug enforcement 
do one major thing, and I've told them to this to their faces. They take out of circulation some very awful people. So when they arrest a drug trafficker, you know, especially the, of the international kind, or of the vicious street kind in urban ghettos, they do us a favor by taking them off the street. However, what we must face is that prohibition and the drug laws and these very same wonderful drug enforcement agents help create the conditions in which these terrible people are, are made billionaires. In other words, I think I should look, we should look at the drug laws as the uh, Violent Gangster Full Employment Act. <laughs> Exactly. So, but we do get some benefit if they take some bad people off the street. In that my city of Houston leads the world in the incarceration of its own people, I, I used to open this program with the phrase, broadcasting from the gulag filling station of planet Earth, this is cultural baggage. <laughs> is the U.S. becoming deranged, uh, quasi-fascist, uh, a gulag? Well, you know, it, it, it is sad that... Uh, uh, years ago, uh, you know, I, I'm that old that I can remember looking at the Reagan drug war and looking at the increase in the number of people going to prison. And I, I, I said, if this continues, by the turn of the century, we will have X number of people in prison. And by gosh, we did. And right now, in the United States, uh, we have a bit over 2 million people behind bars. Uh, and a significant portion of them are uh, uh, because of the drug laws, a significant portion. So uh, it is not a good thing, and uh, I think that's something we should uh, be uh, not proud of. A small side point, often we're told that, that we have the greatest number of people behind bars of any, or the greatest percentage of our people behind bars of any country in the world, I have traveled a bit, and uh, I know that there are some countries that don't even know the number of prisons they have, never mind the number of prisoners. So we're up there. We're certainly, we have more prisoners uh, per capita and absolutely perhaps than any European country. But when you go to the middle, uh, the third world, and you go to, say, Russia, I'm not so sure uh, we're quite that bad. But we're bad, and we should be ashamed. And it's a shame that we uh, are in that uh, range of comparison. That, that's right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, the simple fact is we have a lot of people committing a lot of violent crimes. It's the kind of thing that we've got to work at. And, and we, we must face the fact that the drug laws and drug enforcement create conditions that tempt many people to get involved in crime. In the end, I still do not... Uh, uh, give people who commit crimes a free pass. I simply say uh, that we, we give them a boost and we help them get involved by making these drugs worth so much. Uh, despite the fact that thousands of reformers work daily to expose the, the lies of prohibition, those in Congress and uh, in the judiciary still carry around this little bag of lies. Uh, I, I think you mentioned that the drug war exception to the Constitution. What will it take to break the back of their well, jihad. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think what we've got to do is keep being rational, civilized, uh, as scholarly as possible in terms of our knowledge of the facts, and continue uh, presenting the facts forward 
and recognize that eventually there will be what I call a historic opening, and suddenly it will change. Uh, I hope, hope my book that you're talking about, Fatal Distraction, will be read by opinion makers and that they will recognize that it is indeed a fatal distraction to spend a penny on drug enforcement unless the targets are involved in international terrorism or in international violent criminal enterprises. But they should, we've got to face the fact that what we're doing now is hurting us. Now, because I'm that old, I remember when it was hopeless, the notion that you would have uh, uh, Negroes, blacks, colored people, who they were called colored people when I started, involved in, say, any educational institution in the South. Now you find that minorities are all over Southern education. So I, 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 I lived long enough to know that this was viewed as something impossible, but it's changed. So I guess in the end I'm optimistic. We keep pushing ahead with the truth. We keep uh, repeating it, and we repeat it, and we repeat it. And we keep presenting the truth with the knowledge that in this country, eventually we've come to our senses and changed Runa's policies. By the way, can I add one thing on that? Yes, sir. Years ago, uh, uh, female friends would talk about the need for female liberation, for all the discrimination against females, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know what they were talking about. What do you mean, discrimination against females? Well, eventually they convinced me and they convinced the country. And now there's been a dramatic uplifting of the role of females in this society. In fact, on television stations now, uh, female anchors are starting to dominate. And, you know, the biggest example is Katie Couric now taking over NBC News. So that... Over time, as we raise the consciousness of people about the horrors of some of our policies, I have found that America responds very well and very rationally. So in the end, even though it's a tough, long fight, I believe that one day uh, America is going to wake up and our Congress is going to wake up and say, you know, this drug war business is, is, uh, is failing, it doesn't work, and it is indeed a fatal distraction from the war on terror which should be our major concern. We, once again, we have been speaking with Professor Arnold S. Trebach. He's the author of Fatal Distraction, The War on Drugs in the Age of Islamic Terror. I, I want to thank you for being with us, Professor. Any closing thoughts? Uh, it, I, first of all, I appreciate what you're doing. I think that your attempt, uh, Mr. Becker, to uh, uh, get uh, these ideas out is very important. And my hope is that... that um, uh, people uh, recognize that uh, this society, in the end, uh, does come to its senses, and they should keep pushing these ideas, but not the compromise of decriminalization or medical marijuana. It is the need to get rid of the drug war and prohibition root and branch. And I hope for a commercial that people do uh, ask their booksellers to uh, get fatal distraction from uh, unlimited publishing LLC, and perhaps that will have some impact on the thinking of opinion makers and, and, and uh, public officials. Terry Nelson spent 32 years in service to the U.S. government as a customs border and air interdiction officer. He retired as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel, 
and this week he came to Houston to speak to the city council. This week I attended Houston City Council meeting, and all I heard about was not enough money for parks and programs for kids, but plenty of money for the police to use arresting non-violent drug offenders. They would do a better job of protecting the public if they quit supporting the failed drug policy imposed upon them by the Washington establishment, a policy that causes crime instead of reducing it. Recently, the state of Texas has been getting negative press about not funding state parks. Texas is not alone in its failure to fund Our national parks are not any better off, even though they are meant to be showplaces for the people from all over the world. The total amount of money spent in 2003 on the current failed drug policy choice by all state governments in the United States was reportedly, according to Bureau of Justice Statistics, $185.4 billion. Approximately 61% of that, or $113 billion, was for drug violations. This spending has increased $28 billion since 1999. Do the math. In the failed policy and finance positive change in state parks, national parks, programs for kids, and public schools. Police departments from all over the country are crying out for more men and equipment to wage war on citizens. Public policymakers, not wishing to appear soft on crime, buckle to the status quo drug policy. For most in the public political sector, survival depends on agreeing with the failed policy. What we need is someone with backbone to step forward and do the right thing, admit the official war on drugs policy has failed, and in doing so, open the official doors for new dialogue and a positive change. Drugs are cheaper, more available, and of higher quality than they were 30 years ago. A program with a stated goal of reducing crime, drug addiction, and juvenile drug use have done the exact opposite. There is more drug crime, more teenagers selling drugs, and more dying from related causes than at the beginning of this failed public policy. The current policy causes crime instead of reducing it. It is a failure, and it is time for a change. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. Just like when yours truly speaks to the council, all they could offer was a thanks, Mr. Nelson. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. If you were a farmer, would you plow your field one row at a time? Or would you use a tractor that did the job seven times as fast? If you were a banker, would you switch to an investment plan that delivered seven times your present yield? And if you were a drug warrior, wouldn't you use a weapon that was seven times as effective as those that you're using right now? Well, apparently, the answer to that last question is no. For years now, it's been known that treatment is seven times as effective as enforcement. Now, this has been proven in numerous studies by a variety of organizations, including the prestigious RAND Corporation. But why? Why hang on to a failing strategy when a much better and less expensive solution is right at hand. Well, maybe it's because the prison industrial system depends on a steady flow of bodies to fill the thousands of new cells being built every year. Maybe it's because new forfeiture laws make drug arrests directly profitable to law enforcement agencies in a time of shrinking government funding. 
And maybe it's because Americans are still very puritanical in their desire to punish moral weakness. And our black, brown, and poor citizens are a vulnerable, politically weak population upon whom we can vent our frustrations. These are all poor excuses for continuing a failed program of drug war. But whatever the excuse, the truth is that the drug war is not working. Treatment is vastly more effective, and more effective still is ending prohibition altogether. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. The last bastion of the drug warriors is that using marijuana requires you to smoke it. VaporMed out of Germany has now produced a machine that takes the smoking out of smoking marijuana. It's called the Volcano. They say the vaporizing method involves permeating the herbs with hot air. Their website, vapormed.com. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. As Afghan opium production rises, so does the level of Afghan violence. Since 2001, with American boots on their ground and American eyes in their skies, Afghan opium production has risen nearly 30-fold and has become the source of 92% of the world's black market heroin. The New York Times reports that 1,700 Taliban, more than 70 coalition troops, and scores of civilians have been killed in fighting so far in this bloodiest year of Western occupation. This week, the most senior British commander in Afghanistan described the country as, quote, close to anarchy, end quote. The Financial Times of London reports that the Taliban, funded by the illegal drug trade, are paying men up to $12 a day to fight the fledgling Afghan National Army, which pays only $4 a day to its soldiers in the field. Yesterday, the chairman of the House International Relations Committee, Illinois Republican Henry Hyde, called Afghan opium production, quote, a form of chemical terrorism, end quote, and announced plans for Colombian narcotics police to coordinate with their Afghan counterparts. British Conservative Minister of Parliament Tobias Elwood said this week, quote, The poppy crops are the elephant in the room of the Afghan problem. Last year we spent £600 million on eradication, and all that resulted was the biggest ever export of opium from the country. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. Hello, this is Judge Jim Gray from the Superior Court in Orange County, California. I'm the author of the book, Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial indictment on the war on drugs. And you are listening right now to the Drug Truth Network with Dean Becker. If the drug war is a sham and drugs are harmless, then explain this. I started using drugs when I was 13 years old. All through my 20s, I spent using drugs, selling drugs, and just doing anything I could to get the drugs. I started with pot, like most people probably do, alcohol, cigarettes, and eventually moved up to uh, methamphetamine and went on to cocaine and eventually ended up on heroin. And I remember my mother saying to me one day, you're going to die if you don't get help. It's important for you to understand that there are two sides to every story. Drug addiction is real, and it destroys lives. We use the drug war to curb and control this problem. How many more of these stories would there be without it? 
And how many lives would you condemn to addiction to find out? This has been Winston Francis with the official Government Truth. Winston didn't say whether those whose voices we heard were in a jail, a treatment center, or standing in line for a urine test. Just like with alcohol, there will always be those who have problems of abuse, but that's no reason to put someone in prison. You see, Winston thinks use of drugs is a slippery slope. It's made of doorknob handles and covered with mayonnaise. It's faster than grease lightning and it'll be your end of days. It's a slippery slope. Please listen to this week's Century of Lies program, which features an interview with Dean Kuypers, author of Burning Rainbow Farm. You can hear that and hundreds of our programs online at drugtruth.net. Please look around you. The drug war is a scam. And per usual, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap dancing on the edge of cannabis. Ha, ha, ha.